Have you ever seen something in a theater that you just couldn't explain? Or have you ever thought about if dying really ain't that bad? And do you spend sleepless nights wondering exactly what happened to Natalie Wood that night on the boat? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then it's time for you to exit stage death. Exit Stage Death is the chilling true stories behind your favorite Broadway shows. Releasing bi-weekly on Tuesday starting May 24th. So if you want to find out which Broadway house is the most haunted. Talk about what killed our favorite Broadway flops. And learn about the murderous path of Mama Rose that took Gypsy Rose Lee to stardom. It's time for Places, actors. Thank, Thank you, Places. It's time to exit stage death. Welcome back to another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Lamerck. And today, we have a friend of the pod who, you know, came back when it was the Disney times, uh, but who is now one of the stars of Moulin Rouge, the musical on tour. I have Gabe Martinez. Gabe, welcome back to the show, buddy. I'm so happy to be here. I just, I've been, my heart has been so full recently because I'm working on a new project with your lovely wife, M, and we're doing this and just kind of getting to watch you blossom on road on the tour is amazing. So I'm so happy to have you. Oh, me too, man. We've just, well, not just got out of tech, but we now have our weekdays to ourselves. So it's, you knew we had to do this the first time I had the First I had to. Second I had. I had to. Well, and this literally, this wasn't a planned episode until like a week ago. And when I did, uh, I do a lot of shit posting on Facebook for a lot of you who are my uh, Facebook friend on there. And I shared a meme about this movie and you went, listen, if you ever want to do an episode, I'll do it. And I said, oh boy, let's do it. So Gabe, why don't you tell everyone who doesn't know you who you are and then let them know what movie we're doing today. Well, all right. I'm Gabe Martinez. I am a journeyman performer. I did a lot of cruise ships, a lot of weddings, a lot of tours, a lot of regional theater. I'm just an all around uh, artsy performer type. And my, you know what? I told you it was a top three movie. I think it just took the number one spot on my rewatches this week. We're doing the 1999 postmodern classic, The Mummy, starring Brendan Fraser. Rachel Weiss, what an absolute gem of a film this is. I think that absolutely. I think that as I'm in my 30s and I'm reaching back for nostalgia, especially in quarantine, I'm I'm always so gun shy now, worried that something that I love and look back on with rose-colored glasses will turn out to not hold up or be too problematic or just not very good. And Boy, this one, like I watch this multiple times a year and it's just always so, it's such a great flick, man. Mm-hmm. I texted you while I was watching. I was just like, I'm grinning ear to ear the whole time. And I'm watching it on my phone, like on the treadmill, like, and I'm still just having the time of my life watching this flick. Yeah, it is. It's so much fun. It's so great. Also, I love that we are in a Brendan Fraser renaissance, like as a people, as media consumers, because like seeing him get to like come back and flourish after he's had really like a bad, like a rough decade personally, seeing everybody come back and like welcome him back in with open arms and also just see that Hollywood is clamoring to cast him again is so great. But what's really funny is I saw this movie for the first time a year ago. For the first time? For the first time. So last August, I was getting hired at Universal and this is one of our biggest blockbusters. We have one of our fan favorite theme park rides, which is currently down. Everyone is dying because of it, but (laughs) she's getting a full refurb. She's getting a new life. Uh, 
It's staying the mummy. We're just getting some new tech in her, getting some new safety stuff, which is awesome to see that the company is investing in her. But when I was sitting at Universal doing my like new hire paperwork, this movie was playing in the lobby. And I knew this movie. I knew super sexy Brendan Fraser with the Jim Hawkins haircut. Um, oh, the hair, the, the jaw. Hair, uh-huh. Oh, the everything, the, the humor, the smirk, the real smolder. Because like, let's be honest, if Tangled had been a live action movie in the late 90s, Brendan Fraser would have been Flynn Rider. He oh. still is Flynn Rider in my heart. My heart you got heart. that twister. You got that turned around. Flynn Rider is Brendan, is Brendan Fraser. Fraser. Honestly, honestly. Absolutely. I mean, because uh, even like the guys that are around now are so have so much of like the bur- the bravado of the characters that he always played. Also, Brendan Fraser played the original himbo, and I am so thankful for him. Um but yeah, I was watching this and I saw the middle clip of like their camp being raided and then them ending up inside of the temple and uh-huh. like kind of through the the first, the super handsome guy with glasses. I mean, I think I'm going to talk about how attractive this cast is a lot because- uh, Mr. Burns, the handsome American uh-huh, with the glasses. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. There is not, I mean, this main cast, they all- Oh, they so handsome. They so gorgeous. It's so, so good. Hot. It's uh, hot so cast. hot. It's a hot cast. And you know uh, what else? It, it's a it's a horny movie. Like this movie is, is horny. Mm-hmm. In Nobody's... every aspect of this movie is yeah. it, it's so horny. Like you forgetting, do we cuss? Do we cuss here? Oh, as much as you want. Oh, great. Nobody <laughs> actually fucks in the movie, but everyone wants to fuck all the time, even when all there's just like time. Even when they're being like chased by juicy mummies or devoured by scarabs. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to fuck. It's electricity everywhere and honestly there's chemistry between every cast member because of it and i'm so down like even um emotep like our our like gorgeous fun mommy guy who literally spends most of the movie in just like a leather jock strap yeah like some sheer overrobing and the actor owns it it's just it's just kiss there's so much arnold Vosloo, not billy zane (laughs) yeah not billy zane uh but could be billy zane's you know uh, uh, brethren, I guess. I'm um, still grasping at the idea that you didn't watch this flick until a year ago. This completely changes my whole outlook on this on this whole episode. Yeah, right now. well, so I literally went home, and I know this and The Mummy Returns are two of my one of my housemates' favorite films. Actually, for Christmas, got him the Funko Pops of of O'Connell and Eve. <laughs> uh, just because, like, who doesn't need Rachel Weiss looking <laughs> over you while you're doing work? <laughs> um, but yeah, and so I immediately went home and was like, Tim, I just watched the middle chunk of The Mummy. Can we please turn it on and watch the whole thing on the giant TV? Because I know you, he was like, I am always here to watch The Mummy. So yeah, that was that. And I watch it probably once a month because I love this film so, so much. Um, but yeah, even from the top, the inciting incident is a moment of passion and like carnal lust. And that takes us all the way through the end of mm-hmm. the film. Like imagine loving your side piece so much or someone... You you love your person so much who is someone else's side piece that like you willing to like traverse time uh, to bring them back and take a couple souls just so you can have them through all of eternity with you like I'm done I'm, I think like I that's, love that thought <laughs> that's the horniness meter as opposed to because there's movies with sex in them mm-hmm. and then there's movies that don't need sex in them because mm-hmm. the energy is there and the first like moment of contact we have is he just holds her shoulder and that's mm-hmm. it and it's you know it's a kiss but like but it's that but the touching of the hand on the shoulder is the betrayal right mm-hmm. and that is the inciting incident just a touch and that's enough 
That is enough to set the whole 3000 year story in motion. And the beautiful symbolism of her, of him marring her like perfect makeup Mm. on her body uh, and just a slight marring of it. And then that's the shoulder that she like isn't hiding when the Pharaoh comes in. It's actual really gorgeous visual storytelling, which Mm -hmm. as we get in, this movie has so much of. Um, And this is another movie, like I'm always looking for missteps and things, but again, I intend up to be a little bit of the woke police when it comes to media and things, but this movie, because I think they were parodying moments in genre that go all the way back to like um, the Tarzan novels and things that like, we always play with those ideas that, oh, women sure. are, that women are lesser, but like they're kind of making fun of that in this movie. Like, and the fact that like Evie is a bit of a, like, she's a bit of a bumbling female lead in many ways that she's the smartest person in the room, but doesn't all like she leads with her brain in such a beautiful, gorgeous way that it, you know, it is one of those things that she's not perfect, but like it's seeing her kind of that first time in the big glasses on the ladder or like anytime Ugh. she's out in the sun, anytime she's out in the sun and she looks up in the sun, it's that same moment from Titanic when, when it's the under the, the overshot of Kate Winslet in the hat and she just looks the up hat. in Ugh, the perfect lighting. Like there's just so, so much good. And let me like, talk about the whiplash for 12 year old Gabe in the theater. First PG 13 movie uh-huh, ever. Uh-huh. The first woman I see on screen is stark naked, covered in gold paint, Patricia Velasquez. And the second woman I see on screen is Evie in that blouse with uh-huh. the glasses and those penciled on eyebrows, those horrid eyebrows. I was just like, what's happening to me right now? Well, those eyebrows that are so 1998, like so 97, 98. 98, when it was filmed, they're a little like, honestly, as a costume designer, they did some really beautiful aspects of like actually making sure this was deep rooted in historical fashion, which again, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, in the grand scheme of history, the the gap between this story just after World War One and then, well, like the major chunk of it, and then like where we were in 1999 when this released yeah. wasn't that far apart. So, but like it would have been really easy for them to just make everything look stupid modern, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. But it still felt modern in so many ways without being contrived in a way that a lot of historical... Um, uh it's it's sometimes that like we're, we're living in the age of bridgerton right now and while it is a modern re-looking at the certain time or like the gilded age uh that show a lot of times the dialogue will still be a little too modern disney does this a lot with their films where this just felt right like it felt like they were parodying indiana jones but also parodying like the pulp um adventurer novels of the the early 1900s through the 1930s and so all of those like approaches to this were just so smart and perfect um, well it's so re- self-referential isn't it mm-hmm. like it's very yeah. self-referential it's aware of itself it's also but it's also like unashamed right mm-hmm. i feel like up until then the uh, sort of like meta commentary movies were somehow disdainful of the source mm-hmm. material not this never this mm-hmm. like this was so like loving and you could tell that everybody mm-hmm. working on the project was having just the time of their lives and just wanted to make the most fun movie they could mm-hmm. and in so many ways it like set the table for action adventure moving forward like you see so many tropes in this movie that like 
we, we owe a lot of them to Indiana Jones, but Indiana Jones was so self-serious mm-hmm. and like brooding mm-hmm. and the mummy was just so fun, man. Mm-hmm. Movies should be fun. Yeah. And then we had like, and then we had like a rash of like, Ooh, look how cool history is. And like Swash, but we had like the national treasures and, you know, gladiator 300, like not all historically accurate, yeah. of course, but like those like, period swashbuckling flicks that were just meant to be slick and cool mm-hmm. and then there was a whole rash of monster movies that none of them quite approached mummy like we had mm-hmm. what van helsing which and... by the same director which i think is really interesting that van helsing is was that steven of... summers as well yes it's steven summers yeah he also did the first year joe movie as well Rough. um Rough. yeah but like yeah it's one of those things that like there's so much of this that you can tell it's a love letter to like what he grew up with. And because uh, again, I, you had to bring up Indiana Jones and I think it's going to keep getting brought up because it feels so referential to it. But in the same way that I, I think I'm only getting you to say this once in the, and I love the Indiana Jones movies from growing up with them. Mm-hmm. This is so the opposite of the, problematicness that we have with indiana jones yeah o'connell is the complete opposite the opposite of indiana jones yeah. exactly um he's really kind of the like well and also i'm gonna state if it wasn't for a character like o'connell and brendan fraser's performance i don't think we would have gotten a jack sparrow like johnny depps in pirates of the caribbean because they feel right. very much in the same wheelhouse um o'connell also really still feels like a love letter to a lot of like the early rob liefeld deadpool in the mid 90s uh comic book wise like it's that, <laughs> that kind of like hero. just bulging muscles and tiny feet <laughs> well and and just that like he's willing to like scream back at mummies because they're yelling at him and he's yeah. just had a day uh so great, great, great. We are we are talking around, but I want to hear, baby Gabe. We, you you started touching on it, but let's let's. I want to take you back to 1999. Ugh. Where where was baby Gabe Martinez? What was he doing? And kind of how did this movie imprint on you to kind of move you forward into the career that you've kind of come into? Let's see. Summer between fifth and sixth grade, I believe. Yes, summer between fifth and sixth grade, a major sexual awakening between like just the A and B couple in this flick. Uh, very grown up. I went to the theater. My parents dropped me off. I watched all my friends. It was PG-13. I was 12 at the time, but I looked, you know, 20. But so that wasn't a huge issue. <laughs> but it was also the like it was that feeling like I, I had a, a huge relationship with Disney before mm-hmm. this. And like, I grew up on Disney, but this was maybe one of the first times where it's like, Oh, this is how, this is how a good story can make somebody feel. I want to make people feel this way. And I was watching it on my phone in the gym the other day and stirring like that first pitched battle. Like it's a very, it's a relatively short scene. The French foreign legion is like, defending Hamanatra from the <laughs> the hordes of faceless Arabs. Like one of the, one of the, you know, look, there's some problems, there's mm-hmm. some problems and we'll get to them, I'm sure. But that battle is thrilling. Mm-hmm. There's sand flying everywhere. We get, we get our first glimpse of Benny, who is one of like 10 comic relief characters yep. in the film. Um, O'Connell's sprinting through this man, flying back over his shoulder, emptying his six shooters, throwing them away, pulling out another pair of six shooters. He's got he's got like bullet casings in his teeth. He's got that scarf, the bandolier. Mm-hmm. I was breathless, and I've seen the movie dozens of times. If and it's always like the first time, 
And that's how good, like, that's how good stories should make people feel. And I just, I feel like The Mummy is so foundational to me in terms of like, this is what a good story is. This is, this is why, this is why we watch movies and read books because it's escapism. And because like our lives will never be this cool. And I, and I think about it a lot. I think about this flick all the time in terms of this is how, when I'm doing my job, this is how I want to make people feel. I want to make people's breath get caught in their chest. I want to hear people gasp and like burst out in laughter at an unexpected moment. And it's just so, oh my gosh, I love this flick so damn much. And that eight minute opening montage, can we bring that back? Mm -hmm. Just like this dramatic voiceover narrative exposition, but for their love, like, <laughs> mm -hmm. oh my God, all of those lines. Well, it, it really calls back to those epic films of the 50s and 60s, the Cleopatra, the Ben-Hur, the Ten mm -hmm. Commandments. Also, there is a, a lot of CGI for 1999 in this. Like yeah. this is when we're kind of running with it. But even on our giant screen TV in my house, which is like ultra HD, whatever. Um, it looks great. My, my housemates own it. I don't own it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it looks fantastic. So like, again, it looks like CGI of the time, but like Imhotep building himself back up and like mm. even the practical, like there's still a great combination of practical the faces in the sand, the faces oh. in the sand. There's a lot of really great things that I get. Yeah, Again, this movie really weathers itself well. It ages itself well. Mm -hmm. um, though I think it's funny, you know, we both have the Disney background. Everyone knows where the show started. But uh, Stephen Summers, two of his major um, films that he directed early in his career uh, before this was the live action Huckleberry Finn for Disney and the live action Jungle Book in 94. So 93, 94, he was working at Disney kind of telling these literary kind of giant stories that had become very well known. Um, that was with the Jason Scott Lee, the, the, that Jungle Book, right? And uh, Lena Headey? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, yes. Another yes, really yes. underappreciated, fun, fun movie. That everyone forgets about. Everyone because forgets. like when the new live action Jungle Book came out, we were like, they've been done, already done this, y'all. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. They've done this. Um, <laughs> but, you know. Mowgli was 27 and shredded. <laughs> of course, yeah. Oh, and white, very white. Uh, no, Jason Scott Lee is. Well, he's not very white, but, you know. Related to Bruce Lee? Did I make yes, that up? Yes, yes, yes. No, I believe he is. Yeah. He sure um, wasn't Indian. We can we can no, definitely agree on true. that. That's <laughs> true. But I mean, it you know, it's better than no. I totally misspoke. Oh, you know what I'm thinking of? Oh my god! Just because the posters are similar is Jungle the Jungle with Tim Allen, -uh. which also came out at the same time. I don't know why that's where my mind went because I thought of that. Um, I watched that movie more times than I'm proud of. Burned that VHS out, man. Mm -hmm. But then the mummy happened, and that was it. It was just yep. the mummy on repeat yep. in my house, man, on repeat. Now watching this, I totally get why uh, it was not in my household growing up. I know my dad actually really likes this movie, uh, but he would watch it at work with the other firefighters where um, uh, when I was in utero, my parents went to see Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And um, when I say that my mother had a, a vast physical, uh, like, recollection to that she was like you are flipping around she got so scared of our kalima like uh kalima kalima uh that that priest saw that like, too young i had nightmares about oh, that oh 
yeah, a lot of people say I didn't see it till I was like 20 because of that. And then it became my favorite of the three Indiana Jones movies because it's so bad. It's so um, bad. Oh, the really terrible uh, Anything Goes in Mandarin with the like fan and the hair. Lucky my favorite part of the entire <laughs> Indiana Jones series. Because <laughs> so uh, we wouldn't do that now, but it's sure fun to watch. It. So but fun. because of that, like seeing Emotep kind of look exactly like you know, it's always like a bald, very like swarthy, handsome man who's mm-hmm. doing generally evil things, of course. Um, so I get why we didn't watch it growing up, but God, I wish we had have watched this when I was like, because that would have been my freshman year in high school when this came out. This would have like, I would have loved that. I would have just loved to have been able to watch this, but I'm happy I've watched it now. I know. Uh, what a treat for you to like to to get a, a toehold in this later in life. What a what a thrill. Like well, and that's ugh. honestly, that's honestly what a lot of um it's what a lot of this podcast has been is like revisiting media that I just missed for some way, shape, or form. Mm. Um, which is really good, like to add that as an adult, but it's also been like the beauty of the beauty of streaming is that I've been able to like pile through. Cause even right after Disney plus came out, I had a list of like 12 Disney movies. I had never seen Disney Pixar movies that I'd never seen. And I was like, well, we're living at home now. So let's take three days. I'm going to watch four movies a day. And I'm just going to watch every Disney movie I haven't watched before. Nice. And so we did that. And so it's really, it's been awesome to revisit this um, and just kind of see this Uh, again. There is a sequel that is well-loved amongst mummy fans. Um, Many people do not recall, do not think it is a good movie, but um, it brought back like almost the whole cast, pretty much the whole cast and added Dwayne, the rock Johnson, who was just butting into an actor as part of his time on WWE really launched his like post wrestling career and i'm not mad at it because he's a phenomenal actor like i love what he does rbb rock has come a long way for sure yes yes he has well and it's also like the john cena things like there are a couple of these wrestlers like we also forget that wrestling is performance it is all scripted it's fake not many of them do it well but like some of these guys are so good but there is nothing with anyone that i've asked that is quite like the mummy like quite like this film and i adore the mummy returns i it's another vhs that i absolutely beat to hell and so fun so many great moments it's just a it's a good sequel but like the mummy if like like if you had no knowledge of it mm-hmm. and like you watched it this year and somebody told you it came out in like 2015 2016 you'd be like oh this is wonderful how did i yeah. miss this yeah And And it was before people started to lean too heavily on the CG. It was before that dip where everyone was like, oh, you mean we can just do it all on a green screen? We can do it all on the studio. We can do it all on the computer. Practical effects. There's stop motion. Mm -hmm. I learned this when I was like researching the, the one the one moment where the the scene where he's fighting uh, the priests and she's chained to the stone table, stop motion. How wonderful, like stop motion, CG, practical. Mm -hmm. And it was like, they were were still figuring it out, but they got it right. And like, we're now getting back to a point where people are like, okay, this is probably how we should be doing it. We probably shouldn't be just blowing the whole budget on CG and just putting our actors in scenes with tennis balls on sticks. Yep. Right? Yeah. Oh my God. Especially when we don't need to like in a infinity wars situation and you're building galaxies. Yeah, sure. You do probably need to put them in a giant green screen room, but then, you know, they've also got the, like Sean Gunn is there playing rocket. So it's not literally just like a plush head, but it's still those things of like, why not use practical effects and scenery 
when you can, because there's just something different about the, how the lighting hits. There's something different about how the costumes play in those spaces. Uh, you know, it's just not quite the same. And as an actor, you can tell. Like, oh, yeah. I probably couldn't like pick out every scene where they weren't actually in a scene with a person, but like you can tell, like when you go back and look, it's like, oh, like this is a good actor, mm -hmm. but they're just alone in a room with 30 crew and 10 cameras and like trying to make tears come out of their eyes. Like yep. you get it, you get the difference. That's the problem with so much contemporary film. Well, even film of like starting at this point, moving to now of like the last 25 years, we got to a point where like a lot of the best movie, like a lot of the most critically acclaimed, I'm not going to say best, the critically acclaimed movies or award-winning movies, the actors weren't even in the same room with each other for mm -hmm. half the scenes. And it's like, I, it's, it's what I say about a lot of performances. You can edit an, a gorgeous performance out of a movie star. Mm -hmm. but you cannot build the same performances as some incredible actors. And that's why, you know, like there are certain, the UK actors are just so good that you can just tell the difference between the movies where like they're cobbling together a good performance for you. Or if there was just so much, so much film there for them to use and so much performance. This is my, this is leading into my great, what I believe to be the greatest Oscar snub of all time. And that's Zoe Saldana in Avatar. I, I can't mm -hmm. imagine how she got that performance. And if you ever see clips of her in the ping pong balls, mm -hmm. the headgear, just acting her face off. Mm -hmm. Like, I will never understand how she did that. And of course, you know, Andy Serkis, mm -hmm. uh, obviously Andy Serkis. But like, I always think of Zoe Saldana and like how much she makes me cry in that mm -hmm. big, silly Pocahontas ripoff. Yep. Like, it's, it's I, I love Avatar, but uh, kind of, it's just like good popcorn fodder. Mm -hmm. But Zoe Saldana did some all-time amazing acting in that flick, and she was never even on camera, and presumably never yeah. in the same room as like Sam Worthington. I'm sure she was, but even oh, he was yeah. in like well, I mean, ping pong suits and the yeah. big head. The beautiful thing about that is like because Disney loves to kind of be masturbatory about its process. Well, and Disney didn't make the first one. Let me just say Fox made the first one or whatever because Disney owns it now. But um, they were really kind of masturbatory about that movie because that movie did revolutionize filmmaking in many ways. Like it was the first movie that they used IMAX cameras and there were literally seven in the world and they broke two or there were eight and they broke three. But at the end of it, there were like five left. They were super expensive. But like, again, all of those footage that we see of her, just like the scene where she finds out that he's actually human in a Navi suit, like guitar, and she's, the like the two other actors are holding her back and she's screaming at him and that's like the raw motion capture footage of like them capturing it in the lab with sam there and ever and it was just it's so good she's someone she's a brilliant example of taking every opportunity that's been given to you as an actress and make the most of it because like the first movie i ever saw her in was in center stage I was gonna say. and uh, that coded me to be like, she a bad bitch and I am here for everything she does. And like, she's done a ton of things. I think she's brought so much humanity and like brilliance to Gamora. Um, I I just, I- Gamora and Infinity War is another just, just triumph. Like the scene Ugh. where, the scene where the 12 foot tall purple giant, who's her father, like, how did she, how did we get that out of her? Who, yeah. was on, who was actually on set with her? Was Josh yeah. Brolin on stilts? 
how did she do that? Like yeah, she, and then her and Karen, man. her and Karen Gillan's chemistry mm. as sisters, but also as like enemies. It's so good. And that's why I'm very excited for the third volume of Guardians. Yes, um, please. This is, but it's also great. Cause like how many times do you have an opportunity to like kill your character, but then your character gets brought back in a way that like you get to now relive a different version of that character story. Mm-hmm. Like that's, I love it. Like Star-Lord can die and go away. I don't care. Uh, but whatever. like Gamora, ooh, I love it. Um, I'm going to take that so and untangent us because I do yeah. want to talk about my guy <laughs> B-Phrase more because- Oh, of course. Because has anyone, has anyone nailed the that, that archetype that well since then? Mm-mm. He is handsome and kind and warm and very goofy and silly- has anyone done that since then? If it's anyone, it's Hemsworth as Thor, but it took was, six movies to do it. Well, also, okay, so he's got big golden retriever energy. And I also yeah. think that because he's not the most experienced actor prior to being cast as Thor, he doesn't. So that's also the thing. That was like when you put Nick Jonas in Les Mis with everybody, like, <laughs> like Nick, he's a wonderfully trained musical theater performer as a child. Like he did Galvarash and things, but it's one of those things like once you become a pop star or like, you know, maybe it's what's going to happen with Ariana as Glinda in, in Wicked, but it's one of those things that like when you take one person and everyone else around you has like a Shakespearean level background, like, yeah. Anthony Hopkins is your father, like Hiddleston. Hiddleston's your Rene brother. Russo. Rene Russo. Even Natalie Portman, who is yeah. just a transcendent performer. I mean, and then you've got like Kat Dennings, who is like an up and comer who just understands humor mm-hmm. in such a great way. Skarsgård. Um, oh my gosh. Scar- like, the, you know, there's just so much that when you dropped him in and then Brennan, which again, Kenneth Brennan, very wonderful director typically a better performer than he is a director i will say no one will argue that on you at all um uh his much to do with denzel chef's kiss i love it (laughs) um but you know they were making shakespeare when and then when you got taika who under finally understood thor coming in which is also like i'm glad that we're at the point where like comic book nerds are making comic book movies yeah i mean the russo brothers Taika, like they just don't you dare let me start talking about our flag means death don't let me do it but i might just have to bring you back home and talk about that because i'm watching (laughs) that right now and i am like ripping between tears and and humor but i'm waiting for taika to put brendan in something because i think the two of them together well i think that's why i think that's why the new the new and improved thor has been a success i think that's why i'm i'm over star lord because star lord could never do what rick o'connell does but i think that's i think that's another way that the mummy was prescriptive and before it's time rick o'connell's a comic book character mm-hmm. he's because like the dime novels were and the pulp novels were the comic books of the time and the characters and the main character had to be everything. And he had, you had to like him for a bunch of different reasons because there was only 60 pages, right? In comic books, there's only so many panels because it's so much more visual. And we need, we need that panel of Rick O'Connell screaming back at the mummy and we need him riffing off jokes with Mm -hmm. the other two comic relief Mm -hmm. characters. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I point to Thor Ragnarok and Thor in in Endgame, 
But otherwise, I don't think anyone's quite nailed it. I think mm. like, I think people have been chasing Rick O'Connell with their dashing white male uh, protagonists for 20, however many years. You've got Ryan Reynolds that's gotten close, but he, he yeah. leans on, well, he leans on that crass side of things, which yeah. is why Deadpool works for him. Um, but I mean, you even had that like Dane Cook's humor in the early 2000s was built around a lot of this like Rick O'Connell archetype. Like th- he was playing the like goodest boy version of like toxic bros yeah. um, in a way that like he, you saw him working through his biases, but then you even had like, the softer what i loved was like o'connell is one of the hardest men in this movies which is really funny mm-hmm. um oh well and then you had uh oded fier playing uh Ugh. our death is he I the mean, handsome man of all time with that yeah, hair oh, and even with the face tattoos normally i'm like let's Especially not with, with the, the face, face tattoos. Tattoo. oh yeah he looked <laughs> at the end of that movie when he just like grabs his shoulder scares the piss out of him and like smiles and is up there i'm like daddy daddy i like didn't know camels were so, my kink oh my I, god <laughs> right well and like even i'm seeing a photo of him from like three or four years ago where he's just like salt and pepper but like still got the cheekbones brilliant white teeth handsome handsome man handsome everyone's handsome man. so hot in this but movie. but they're all they're, they're all like softer men than o'connell mm-hmm. um but they're so funny and effortless about like their versions of like they're what's really great is the older men in this are the most toxically masculine and they're the like academics of this, which I think is really funny. And then like nerds. Yeah. They're the actual, (laughs) which I mean, you know, we still see that now, but it is one of those things that like, there is so many interesting things that they're doing with like, I love how they're making fun of Americans the whole time. And then they look at like Connell and go up present company excluded. And he's just like, no, they're assholes. And it's, it's so good because it's again it's an american film that's making fun of americans it's just so it's just so bright and vibrant the the writing is there i imagine this film was a ton of fun to write because mm-hmm. you've got these beautiful moments of comedy but also these great moments of action they're famed they're framed beautifully and what's interesting is you know typically who gets the screenplay credit isn't always the person that just wrote the script but it was you know steven summers came up with the story wrote the screenplay he directed it but he also had kevin uh Gere and lloyd uh uh fun vla uh write this with him do the story with him so it's one of those things that like you can just see that at the bit like at, at its peak summers understands both the idea of the action and the comedy and even the way that like when they're in the plane and it comes around the corner and we don't see it crash because we understand that that's a way more expensive shot. We just see the like yeah. explosion of sand and then we pan over, which again, there's some old school film techniques that are utilized this that are very similar to Ben Hur, 10 commandments that are just so on point. And it's another example. It's like, spend your time and energy working on what you need to, instead of reinventing the wheel when you don't have to. And I think that's another great success of the film. And I'm glad you mentioned Deadpool because like Deadpool is kind of like the nth degree of this mm-hmm. in melding the action in the comedy mm-hmm. because like, but even, even a film like Deadpool, like there's comedy moments, then there's action moments and it's back and forth between the two. And it's kind of like whiplash. Yep. Mommy was so good at like seamlessly blending those two together with those like old school mm-hmm. film techniques we talked about. And then even like, even talking about Rick O'Connell, because Rick O'Connell, even when he's being goofy, you don't forget that you're supposed to be scared of him. Mm-hmm. And even when he's being a badass, 
you don't forget that he's goofy and kind like mm -hmm. and that and i think that like you can zoom out to the whole movie mm -hmm. and it the the fun moments are so seamlessly interwoven with the with genuinely scary moments mm -hmm. it is it is a, also a horror film. This is a horror film. Like that is at the end of the day, that's why this is a PG-13 rating. If they'd gone a little bit further, it would have had an R rating. It's why I think when like all the liquids turn to blood, it's why it still looks like Kool-Aid yeah. or like juice <laughs> is because those are those moments of like, oh shit, that would have gotten into just a little bit worse. When the, um, when the, when the single beetle crawls into Jonathan's hand uh -huh. and Rick pops it out with a knife, not a speck of blood. No. Like, it's the same thing that made John Carpenter's Halloween so good is that we only see blood once. And then after that, we don't see it again. And it actually really strengthens what happens because there's also those moments of hearing the screams and then seeing what happens after. But the actual horror of the moments of like the eyes being plucked out and the tongues being cut out, those moments, um, are so much more horrific and so much more terrifying when they're in the temple because we're not actually watching them happen. And I, I tell you the scariest strength, the scariest moment for me still, the scariest moment when I saw it in theaters and the scariest moment for me still is Mr. Burns, uh, the, the glasses wearing American who has mm -hmm. no business being that handsome. He could have been Rick O'Connell in a Thank second. Thank you. Oh my God. Yes. When he's running and he falls they're in the they're in the tomb. They're, he's running. He falls. His glasses go flying off. He says, "Can you help me find my glasses?" Then he stomps on them, crushes them. My heart is in my throat every time I see that because I am so horribly bat blind, and I was even then. I had my like. Not only did I have my big Coke bottle glasses on, I had my spare pair in my pocket because God forbid something should happen uh -huh, to my glasses. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. And like, I clutched my glasses when I saw that and he picks them up and he's whimpering as he looks that like, I'm, I'm getting emotional thinking about uh -huh. that because that's still one of the most frightening moments, like in cinema to me, that's, it's so scary. And there's the whoosh as the mummy passes behind him uh -huh. and we see it through his eyes and everything's blurry. And I'm just like, that's it. That's my worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. I'm underground without my glasses it's over. Please just put me out of my misery now. Yeah. And you've been separated from everyone else. Like that's Ugh. the whole, yeah. Well, and it's so funny that you say that he could have been O'Connell too. And I think he, to me is a clear spot where they were like, we need an Indiana Jones character in this. That's not O'Connell. That's not going to win at the end of the day that we're going to, and he's one of three. Suffer. They put three and in he's there. one of three. Well, yeah. Cause then we get the like wild bill Earp American. That's just like, bam, 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 bam. I love it. He's Anderson. Yeah, 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 and so it's all—it's uh, just so. And then the very like Willie Loman of the three, the like not quite as handsome as everybody else in the party guy, um, that they get that the mummy gets last. But it's you know it's it is just uh, it's it's these great moments where we're watching these characters that it would be their own hero in their own story. Mm. Um, it's like what happens when you take a bunch of characters that would be their own leads in their own novel and put them as a secondary character in someone else's novel. Um, Cause it's and like everyone he, in this movie is the main character of their own yep, story. Yep. The Egyptologist, uh -huh. all the three Americans, Imhotep, obviously, mm -hmm. but like every character is like, is instantly and effortlessly three-dimensional mm -hmm. and engaging and mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they still don't know how they do it. Like, yeah. I don't know how they did it. And oh my gosh. And it's just, it's such a good ensemble flick, but 
the stars are the stars, unmistakably. Mm -hmm. The bad guy is the bad guy, but then everybody gets to be comic relief. And oh my gosh, it's, I'm like, just, so, I'm about to watch this flick today. I'm about to watch it this afternoon. Like what's better as an actor than getting to, you don't have to pick between the funny role and the serious role. You get to do both. And that's, a, again, you said it flushes them out in such a beautiful way without too much work. And that is something that is so difficult to do. Mm -hmm. um, and also we haven't talked about him yet, but John Hanna as Jonathan is so, where we actually watch him go on this incredible journey as like British entrepreneur that just kind of wants to explore and make money to actually watch him like care about these things in the same way that his sister does. There's a um, scene where um, the him, uh, Audit Pay and O'Connell are, the, the mummies start popping out of the ground and Audit Pay has ripped the 50 cal off the back of the plane. Like, does that even work? Oh, I don't know, <laughs> but the, it's- And O'Connell's got his shotgun mm -hmm. and they're firing into a crowd of mummies. And John Hanna as Jonathan takes O'Connell's six shooters. And there's this one scene where you see O'Connell look at him like, oh, okay, come to play. He might not have hit anything with, with either six shooters. And he throws one of them at a mummy when he's running away. Oh man. And he, you know what? Anytime I see him at anything, I'm, so, mm -hmm. I'm thrilled because mm -hmm. he didn't be, I thought he'd be huge. Mm -hmm. I thought he'd be everywhere after this. I thought he'd be the next uh, Rowan Atkinson. Like I mm -hmm. thought he'd be everywhere after this. Uh, did you ever see, did you ever watch any Spartacus? Um, oh, the TV show? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, no, no. But I know he was on that. I mean, it's also hard in a time where he looks a lot like Hugh Grant. He looks does a lot, lot of, like he does a lot of what Hugh Grant does. And while Hugh, I mean, cause this was right when Notting Hill was coming out. So like Hugh Grant was becoming huge in his own right. Um, he had done that magnificent, magnificent um, sense and sensibility with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet and, Gosh, and Alan Rickman. Did, didn't he? He was so oh, young then, wasn't beautiful he? Beautiful film, beautiful film. And this was, um, I suppose, right before About a Boy. Yes. Yeah, I think Which, About a Boy was like nine, 2000, I think. And that's a very Jonathan Carnahan character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. is about a, like I, I never think of him in terms of Hugh Grant but I, I guess I that's... feel like they probably went out for a lot of the same roles I'm sure theater wise they went out for a lot of the same roles as well but you know it is also one of those things that that was a time where everybody was becoming huge and that was the time of the mega like people were becoming mega stars in a way that we hadn't seen before um but he's so delightful in this movie and he's so charming in a way that you just kind of want to be swept off your feet by this kind of person when you go to the UK. Like, he wins like, uh, Mummy Returns too. Yeah. He's, he's the strongest. His is the strongest performance in Mummy Returns as well. And it really finishes up his character arc. And he, he, and he's, he's such a scoundrel, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, and that's, he's also like, He's an archetype, like right off the bat, you're like, oh, he's the ne'er-do-well brother who's always mm -hmm. got a scheme. But mm -hmm. then he just like, he's banger after banger in this movie and he just never stops. And then we also get Benny, Kevin J. O'Connor as, as Benny, the Weasley, uh, despicable sidekick. What a great character actor. Like he's so great. Looks to me like I've got all the horses is an all time belly laugh moment for me. Looks like you're on the wrong side of the river. Brilliant. All-time belly laugh moment. Uh, um, he's another one. Like he gets less screen time than Jonathan does, but every line out of his mouth is an absolute banger. Every moment is pitch perfect. 
I think we probably have to talk about like slightly problematic casting at some point. Yeah, I mean, he's I mean, just a Midwestern white guy. Yeah, and I'm, he's I mean he's playing a Hungarian, which is a little less problematic for me in many ways. But oh, was he is he meant to be Hungarian? Yeah, they they called him the Hungarian at one point. Oh, I'm I've never noticed that. Okay, oh, that's a little less problematic. Other great, I want to know. So this is a, a thing talking about his character that I want to know where it came from like where it came in like the filming of things um was when he pulls out the cross and then he pulls out the entire necklaces of like every totem or world religion and he's speaking hindu and he's speaking uh-huh. hebrew and he's, and speaking, he's speaking mandarin Chinese. oh, oh it's so good well but then what's so interesting that i thought was a really interesting moment uh, you know whether for good or bad is that it's the star of david that stops emotep because he represented the language of the slaves. And I went, that is a nice historical piece. That is like a very nice historical moment. It makes sense. It does make sense. And it's one of those that went, who? Okay, whatever he had to do. But yeah, he is a sensational character actor who would come back in Van Helsing. I always forgot that he's in Van Helsing as well. They just buried him under so many prosthetics. I wish they hadn't done that. Yeah. Because he was another, like Van Helsing's a rough watch. It's I'll watch it. I'll watch it because it's a fun, bad flick, but it's a rough watch. But he was one, he's, he's wonderful. And his, even just his dialect work, for his character, mm-hmm. but then to just be on top of all those, like, I, I, I'll never know that it, I'll never know if any of the, if any of the, the blessings or incantations he was saying were remotely accurate, but yeah. like to learn that he's just a white guy from Missouri or wherever was mm-hmm. wild to me because I always thought that he was Eastern and had in- intimate knowledge of these, mm-hmm. of these languages, which is like, I can forgive the problematic casting like Arnold Vosloo, who is a white South, a white South African man. Um, Patricia Velasquez, who's Venezuelan. Um, the Egyptologist fellow. It's like, just like throwing Allah into sentences. I'm always uh-huh. like, okay, all right, okay. Uh, okay, all, all, right, right, all right. No, I guess that's the curator. The Egyptologist. Yes, was, yeah, was it's the that. curator. Yeah, the Egyptologist was Jonathan Hyde, who uh, well held from Jumanji. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, he was the uh, Cadbury, the butler in Richie Rich, one of my favorite Whoa. movies growing up. Oh, what a what pull. of my favorite. Yep, 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 yep. What um, a pull. And then we have um, I'm gonna butcher his name, but uh, the prison warden. Oh, um, I'm gonna look it up right now. Oh, I've got it right here. Um, Oh, Omid uh, uh, Dalili? Jil- Omid Jalili, yeah. Yeah. Uh, d- in like at first blush, a really horrible, a really horrible Arab stereotype. Mm-hmm. But to, he actually has a stand up special. He's huge. Um, he's huge in Turkey. I believe he's Turkish. I could be wrong. But um, Persian. He, he's like a natural hero. Yeah. Because a national hero. Um, because they just wanted to make his character like just disgusting and despicable. And he's like, I got to at least make it two dimensional. Mm -hmm. He's got to be funny. He pitched them lines. He pitched them jokes and like big respect for this guy. It's tough to watch in retrospect because he's just like conniving and smelly. Mm -hmm. And like, it it wasn't, it wasn't, it's a weak moment for the writing of that Mm -hmm. flick, but to hear him speak about it, and to know that he fought to at least turn this character into something and to have a meaningful effect on the story 
-hmm. big big props to the actor himself like it, it's nice to, it's nice to hear that about him as an actor and to hear that he was like right i'm clearly going to be the only actual representation mm -hmm. in this flick and i'm going to have i got to do something with it i will not take this gig unless they let me do something capital mm -hmm. s something with this character so that takes some of the sting out of having to watch that um and the casting it's like look like they were trying to at least look and sound authentic. They had an Egyptian, uh, a, a, an expert in written Egyptian language come in and try and, and, and work on pronunciation because the, the written Egyptian language doesn't have any phonetics. Mm -hmm. So it's impossible to know what the spoken language sounded like, but they were going for authenticity every step of the way. And when it's a, and when it's a Y2K era flick, right? I think if we're like, if we're hunting for things that were problematic, we're going to find them. But if you take like the whole thing into consideration and see that they were really, that they were trying, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of all we can expect from movies of that era. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I think for me that especially, I'm always going to be more forgiving if it's a movie that I love. But I think if you really dig down and you're looking for things to have a problem with, you're going to find them. But like, mm -hmm. but holding it up to, the light yeah. for what it was they did their best i think they well, really did their best and it's it's clear that they were open to his suggestions as an actor which also and any actor having the wherewithal and the like courage to actually stand up and say i thank you thank you for this but uh, we have a couple things we could change and then having a production that is like oh i'm super open to this let's 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 hear what you have to say but it, it's nice to see that they were kind of open to that change now it's been Really interesting because we're talking, this is a movie that almost wasn't going to be good. Um, Cause I don't know if you noticed in your research, this movie went through like six directors before they actually got to, to Summers. Um, and it, because it went, they wanted it to be a horror film. And so they really started with um, doing people like Clive Baker and like a lot of uh, George A. Romero, um, like, they that's where the film treatment started for universal um and they wanted a mummy version of the terminator and so it that makes good sense yeah like, so they kind of got there well originally they wanted it to be a contemporary setting like beverly hills they wanted it to be egypt coming to uh egypt coming to the uh to the modern era and then they wanted to play with like just kind of remaking the 1932 mummy film which is the classic universal's monsters version of the mummy and then romero came back to wanting to do kind of a zombie aspect of that which i think did kind of settle in um and romero i believe kind of looking through is the one that settled that they started looking at imatep and setting it during the time of ramesses the second which would have been the 19th dynasty of egypt which evie says in the film um but again uh they said it was too dark and too violent for the studio and so they then went with um mcgarris uh, like this is back in like 94 because this movie started pre-pro in like 92, <laughs> 93 Universal was trying to work on it and it took until 1996. So what's really interesting to think of, they found their screenwriter and their director 
within two years of the movie hitting theaters. Wow. And in the 90s, that's fucking ridiculous. To Can me. you imagine what a crime it would be if we had gotten Beverly Hills Mummy? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Disaster. Even if you have the exact same cast, I just, well, and Beverly Hills Mummy would have been written by um, uh, several other, well, at that point, Daniel Day-Lewis was going to be the O'Connell character. Really? Yeah. I know um, they also pitched like Affleck and Damon mm-hmm. coming off Goodwill Hunting. They 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 wanted like a bunch of other, you know, really basic 90s stars. Oh, um, can you imagine? That I think we about don't... this with movies like this all the time, just how badly it could have gone wrong. I'm glad without... we got I'm glad we got the himbo and not the brooding beefcake. Like yeah. they are the two things at the time, but like I'm glad we didn't get the the Ben Affleck version of it, not saying that he's not a great and then Rachel Weiss, we got our we got our Hermione Granger, like mm-hmm. we, we got our precursor mm-hmm. to all these mm-hmm. these heroines that were smart and clever and mm-hmm. also could like throw a punch if they needed to, but like their their strength wasn't in the fact that they were somehow that they had somehow traditionally masculine traits. Yeah. Their strength was in their character and their minds, and they could hang in there with the best of them. And they were funny and like that. That's what's so great about Evie because like, we're not expected to. So it's like anti Mary Sue, right? Mm-hmm. We're not expected to believe that she's suddenly become a weapons expert. Like we, we kind of get that in Mummy Returns, but then we also get the idea that she's been married to O'Connell for all this time and he's been training her to protect herself. But her formidableness, her fortitude, her strengths are, are not that like she is somehow a badass for no reason exactly she is she has strength as a person and like she's her naivete is also a strength because she's an idealist and she's not afraid and you don't have to be a karate expert or like a gunslinger to have no fear she has no fear right do you know my favorite part about her performance is her her horror movie scream just has some bass to it. She is not doing that shrill damsel in distress yep. scream. She is a she is an adult human who is pissing her pants because there's a mummy. And you see real fear. Like when she's on the altar and the female mummy rolls over and like her absolute look of horror. Also, I will just say, no matter what film she does, she always brings an incredible performance. She, the, the cast around Scarlett Johansson and Black Widow was the reason why that movie was so good. Like Rachel Weiss is amazing in that film. But I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm really happy they didn't do the kind of it taking place in modern because then I think it would have gotten too quippy. It would have been what the Matthew Broderick Godzilla ends up being, which is just a little too quippy, a little too modern. Uh, it just doesn't um, think. What I, what I think is really funny is the studio was petitioning for Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and that's why they went to Tom Cruise first to do the reboot that we did in like 2013, 2017. Yeah. Like um, but Summers said he went, listen, there's this guy who just did the live action reboot of George of the Jungle for Disney and made a ton of money and people are thirsty for him. And so 
that literally got Brendan Fraser cast was the box office uh, success of George of the Jungle, which I love that movie so much. Another another VHS that just got beat all to oh, hell in Martina's house. Mine too. Mine too. Uh, and apparently, so like, again, this movie should not have succeeded in the way that it did because uh, apparently Universal was so disappointed by Babe Pig in the City doing so badly uh, that they... <laughs> They ended up with a new chair of the studio named Stacey Snyder. And so she said, you know what? We're just going to, she distributed a packet of their holdings for the studios of everything they owned and about, uh, and this included 5,000 old scripts and movies of what they could do. And so in this tiny amount of time, Summers went boom. And he like slid a 20 page prospectus in on his mummy movie. And they said, boom, done. Uh, absolutely has to happen. He worked on his own research and then brought in a UCLA professor, which just makes uh, this just work so well. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad. Uh, last little bit of trivia with it is Evie is a real person. Like her character is uh, based on the daughter of the man who found the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1922. That's so cool. And so she, that is a love letter to her, uh, which I still think it's funny that he is an amateur Egyptologist. So like he was just a self-studied Egyptologist that found King Tut's tomb. Because I remember also in the mid nineties, this made a ton of sense that this came out because one Egyptology was becoming huge again, but we were finding some unscathed tombs and things for the first time in the 90s that were getting opened up and like really researched so the idea of egypt and mummy and and all those aspects were so fresh in everybody's brain and they were in the media that it made a ton of sense for this to happen and also kind of riff away from the like bandaged mummy which actually had gotten a, a really bad rap for universal at this point rap <laughs> <laughs> and um and was like heavily critiqued and like satirized. And so they needed an actual scary mummy movie that also was about adventure and romance. Yeah, yeah. Like it was like, this was supposed to be a love letter letter to Errol Flynn, which makes a ton of sense. Um, and so uh, we, we keep dancing around and talking about really good things. What are some things on your rewatch this week that we haven't touched on that you just think makes this movie stand out? I think um, I think all of Evie's moments are so perfect. There's the one where um, just just another way in which they like just sort of challenge the damsel in distress trope and just hit. I think on every moment there's the bit where um, the 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 plagues of Egypt are raining down on Cairo and they're hiding and they're surrounding themselves with cats and they don't know what they're doing. And then there's a bit where um, where O'Connell says, I'm going to go find uh, the Egyptologist. And he tells the Americans, you come with me. And he says, Evie, you stay here. And the Americans are like, no, I'm not going out there. And Evie's like, now just one moment, Mr. O'Connell. It's like, she's just so perfect because she's not afraid and not because she's going to go shoot the bad guy, but because she's smart and she's going to use her brain. She goes to, and then they, they realize they, um, they realize that the books were switched because there was a, a mistranslation. And what's her, what's my favorite line of hers. She, she translates it and realizes the mistake they made. Take that Bembridge scholars. Oh my <laughs> God. She's so winning and charming and wide eyed every step of the way. Um, she is such a success. 
everything we've talked about with Rick. I don't even think like if you let me talk about this movie for 12 hours, I'll do it. Listen, but an extended like, episode, that's fine. An episode. There's another, there's that other moment. That's just so uh, thrilling. Um, the, f- the, the final fight, of course, like the plagues raining down. Then there's the bit, oh, when they're trying to escape Cairo and the boils and sores plague has set in and they've all become Imhotep's um, like flunkies or zombies or whatever, where Jonathan uh, is found by the zombies, but then starts chanting Imhotep. So they'll think he's one of them. Uh-huh. That got us, that got applause in the theater in 1999 when I saw it. I'll never forget full applause from the crowds. And you know, the five or six times I went to see it in theaters mm-hmm. after that, that same summer, man, oh my gosh. It's just such fun. It's such good fun. There's a, there's a moment in every movie where I like, where I like think about the actor was sitting and watching that scene and being like that, that's immortality. Like they have that forever. It's O'Connell with the torch. It's the, um, when, when Evie has decided to like allow herself to be taken by Imhotep, another big hero move that doesn't rely on her doing any swashbuckling, but her just being brave and not afraid. And Okay, and it, it was the scene from the trailer, the last clip of the 32nd Super Bowl spot, because I remember that too. That February, the Super Bowl was the first trailer for the mummy. And he like kind of sidearms the torch like at the camera. That's immortality. Like that's that's such a, a heart in the throat moment. He he like lowers the torch to Imhotep and says, I'll be seeing you again. These are moments that like mm-hmm. Everything that's happened to our guy, Brendan, and no matter how, what his movie career looks like after that, like he always, he has that forever. That is, that is Brendan Fraser's like legacy. This moment that made people gasp and like clutch themselves. And it's just such a great moment. And he's swinging the torch around and he's out of bullets and it's just oh, it's so good. I'm going to watch it again. This week. <laughs> like I watched it twice this week already. I'm going to watch it again. It's such a good movie. And again, if you told, if you showed this to an alien and told them that, the, that this was the biggest blockbuster movie of 2021, they believe you. They'd have no reason not to believe you. They'd be like, oh, the CG is, you know, maybe a little spotty in some spots, but what a great flint. What a great flick. Oh, Winston, um, the old retired Air Force pilot, the Royal Air Force pilot. <laughs> a prolific actor, prolific. I mean, Hogan's Heroes, Andy Griffith, yep. like the man's been a, was around forever. And he had such small parts in this film. I feel like maybe he was in more that got cut, but I, yeah, he's so likable and Again, at the end of the day, he's just mad that he outlived his homies. Like, he's just so upset that he's the one that made it through. He's trying so, to like, die in flame just and glory. trying to die. And he did that. He absolutely did that. When he dies with a smile on his face mm-hmm. and the plane sinks into the sand and O'Connell salutes him, tears, salt yep. tears every single time without fail. Well, and nobody's upset because they knew that's ultimately what he wanted. And that's why he agreed to this, this literal suicide mission. And that's just um, another, that scene is another microcosm of how this movie is so like mm-hmm. self-referential. Um, rescue the damsel in distress, kill the bad guy, save the world. Ha ha! Patrol service! <laughs> like, I love, with the ridiculous mustache, the ridiculous dialect, like it just, it's so, out so of wonderful. Now, 
this movie is another moment where I talk about that we need to dismantle this idea of art criticism the way that we had it like film mm-hmm. critic because like there was a time because you're within the same age group as me that like we lived and died by what Siskel and Ebert said like we mm-hmm. lived and died by the film reviews people read film reviews when they were put in the the you know there used to be pages and pages and pages of film reviews in newspapers when people read newspapers I mean the same thing happens now but to think that there were 110 reviews done within the year that this movie came out and what? it only has a 61% critic rating. 61%. It has a Metacritic rating of 48 out of 100 based on 34 critics. Even Rotten um, Tomatoes is in the 70s somewhere. Um, no, Rotten Tomatoes is 61 as oh recently. Gosh. Yeah. And so it's got a film score of B, which I think that's, it's it has the best aspects of a B film that's made on an A budget, but it's like an A, like it's an A-list film with B-list qualities to it. Um, but I just, this is one of those moments where it's like when we talk about theater, now that Ben Brantley isn't reviewing for the New York Times and just thinking over the years of how many shows Ben Brantley killed because he said he didn't like them when that man has no theater training, no theater background, but became the voice for the New York times in theater. Um, I will spit on the grave of Ben Brantley when that happens. Uh, but it's one of those moments where, you know, even reading the reviews, Roger Ebert said, there is hardly a thing I can say in its favor, except that I was cheered by nearly every second of the film. I cannot argue for the script, the direction, or the acting, or even the mummy, but I can say that I was not bored and sometimes was unreasonably pleased by what I was seeing. That to me, if we saw that today, they would probably be giving that film a 90, like a 90%. What more could you ask of a movie? Honestly, well, because that's what this movie is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a love letter to pulp novels, to old action films. Low art, baby. Like, but it's also really high filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the thing is, it is this... You and I as more what I like to think cultured individuals. Mm, um, rather. Rather. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, we, we can talk about the performance aspects, the tech aspects, the, the, the aspects of this film where everybody else is going to be like, wow, these people are so hot and this action's really good. Um, you know, so it feels, you can put this on in a room of people at like a holiday event or family gathering and probably everyone's going to watch it. Yeah. I mean, because we also have to talk about that there were years that on TNT and TBS, this movie played every weekend. Every weekend. I Um, watched it every time, even though we had it on VHS. And it is a financial success. This movie made millions and millions and millions of dollars for Universal. It opened against Phantom Menace and and I think a Bond film too. It mm -hmm. opened same weekend as like... Like it had no business doing as well as it did. Not only did it hold its own, I think it's 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 held up much better in the two decades since. And I, I think agree. it's probably remembered a lot more favorably. Misa thinks this is better film. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm actually due for a Star Wars rewatch. So I'm going to have- Listen, Jar Jar come I, will, I will die for Phantom Menace as one of the most enjoyable Star Wars films because it's utter garbage. Um, but it is so stupid and enjoyable because you, so you get pod racing. You get pod racing. Pod racing is amazing. And you get the Duel of the Fates battle. Like, Jesus Christ, is the Trade Federation the most arguously racist thing ever? Also, Not only racist, it, but like unforgivably 
boring 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 villains that the alien that owns anakin and his mother is it not the worst jewish stereotype of all time it absolutely is are the gungans real bad almost blackface absolutely but is that movie a banger absolutely it is but when you saw that other red lightsaber blade come out you'll never forget how you felt when you saw that screamed also i remember it was probably the first time i noticed the design of a film because let Mm. me tell you the um the uh nabu starfighters gorgeous those sleek the the difference between like nabu being an art nouveau planet like just everything was soft and curved but it was extravagant and beautiful versus like coruscant's like hard metallic edge um the trade federations like utilitarian sort yep. of mm-hmm. efficient war machine mm-hmm. brilliant mm-hmm. i i, yeah. I love i love hannah menace yes it's um, bad of course it's yeah, bad it's but bad. like and it's Duel not- of Fates is still a it's top also, 10 scene. It's also not the worst of those three films. Oh, not, not, by, not by a damn sight. And it's certain, even I will give this for the new trilogy. None of those were as boring as that middle film. Oh, of the Attack three. of the is rough. Rough. It's uh, the well, only the Star even, Wars film that when I get to it, I'm like, okay, here we go. Even Return of the Sith has a few good moments, but they can't save that fucking movie. No. Um, but but uh, something I will say for this, Industrial Light and Sound. Yeah. Um, has they have the most beautiful way of being so unapologetically unbiased when they are paid properly for a film because the idea that they worked on this and the phantom menace at the same time for them to drop and it's because i mean what a wild year like even now that they're under the i guess they're under the disney umbrella i don't actually know how that works because it's part, they were part of Lucasfilm, but they're not, I don't know. They're still doing some, they've done some of the most revolutionary breathtaking work in the industry. If there's like, oh, what was it? There was uh, technology in this that was actually developed for Phantom Menace. Um, oh, the flesh eating scarabs was a uh, technology used for Phantom Menace that they had developed and then immediately used for this because Phantom Menace was in production much longer than this was. But um, and then uh, Universal had famously released Twister, which everybody says is a bad movie, but I think is a great bad movie. Um, I never got down on Twister. I can't with Bill with Bill Paxton sometimes. Oh, he's a lot. He's Bill a whole Paxton. lot. Yeah, but um. Tough uh but yeah so like all of the sand storms and stuff were all used from that twister technology and so this is really an and but like they also used matte painting and models for a lot of the stuff and then one reason why the performance of emotep is so good is it's one of the first heavily used like motion capture in the way they, they did it. Mm-hmm. So Voslu was on set for everything. He filmed everything with them. So even if it wasn't him in like skin and everything, it was still him doing the performances in his face. And so, you know, we see a lot of the disjointed with the eyes and things. It wasn't quite as good as it is now, but like all of these things really kind of help put together so much and they still relayed really relied on prosthetics over top of the motion capture so they were doing everything they could to make this look like the best film that they could and like we said a few times this still holds up better than films that were made three or four years ago right and the fact that it was released alongside phantom menace i think Mm -hmm. is very telling because phantom menace what we talked about before with like integrating cg and practical and other techniques phantom that's where phantom menace missed the mark like they were they were phantom menace was 
pioneering CG like technology, of course, mm -hmm. but like they, it'll, it'll, it's reach exceeded its grasp in so many areas, but you don't feel that way with the mummy, which came out. The mummy feels so much more grounded. Obviously it takes place on earth in a time period that existed and has like a style to draw upon. Like I'm not taking away from any, cause Lucas say what you want the prequels, but they still pushed the boundaries every single every movie pushed the boundaries of movie making and visual effects but to hold that up next like phantom menace looks dated today you watch mm -hmm. the cg in phantom menace it looks dated today not so with the mummy not so it doesn't yep. it doesn't look dated at all i don't think yep no i i agree with you 100 percent. and i gotta be honest hold on i've gotta i want to look at something before i say whether i put my foot in my mouth oh yeah i'm I'm not shocked that like they got everyone back for the second film. I'm going to preface with this with everyone. I have not watched the second film yet. It's a delight. Yeah. It's, you're going to well, like it. Last night, I was either going to do that or I decided to watch Gremlins for the first time. And I watched Gremlins for the first <laughs> time. Um, uh, shout out to a friend of the pod, Kevin Gads, for always talking about, and I've always loved Gibbs, uh, Gizmo, but I was shocked that, so there are, four mummy films technically there's a prequel film uh which is the scorpion king and then there are three movies in this franchise i'm really surprised brendan fraser came back for tomb of the dragon Emperor. i think that I, I i don't know i don't know my guy fraser's life but i think that that was probably right on the the tail end right before he disappeared for a while i think it was trying to like I think that was going to revive his career, perhaps. It's worth it's worth a watch. Here's the thing about Dragon Emperor: no Rachel Weiss. Nope. It's um, oh, what's her face? I can see her name. Maria Bello. Maria Bello, who did her best and was fine, and is not actually British, but like, right. but, but the that crackling chemistry mm -hmm. that Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss had uh, is is absent. Um, and it's it's one of those things at that point just don't have evie in the film like do not have evie in the film yeah. like if that is i do love this idea that like there is a mummy's curse that is large that is like in china i actually love that idea because the egyptians were not the only ones who mummified right. their their things and kind of this idea of jet lee as the emperor and then you also had michelle yo who is just a <sighs> icon have you seen uh, it yet have you seen everything everywhere all at once? Uh, uh no i'm seeing it literally as soon as we hang up with this i'm going to universal no to uh, see it yeah, i haven't yeah. seen it yet either um uh but like and you had anthony wong and like that in theory should have worked really well it but... really should have so i guess it could have been at least as good as return which yes. was good yeah but it, it um, was it was rough it, it was tough i still watch it but like you wonder what happens with these sequels like you know what worked in the first one. Why are you getting gimmicky and cute? The first one was good because it you didn't have to get gimmicky and cute. Like I, you could have told the same story. I don't know. I still I, love Return. I, I think this is what happens when you have like, this is so much obviously brain and heart child of Stephen Summers. And he mm -hmm. didn't have anything to do with this other than being given a producer credit. Yeah. Um, and so I... Have you have you seen the um, twenty seventeen Mummy? I the saw Tom Cruise one, half of it, which is like it's the really fact, bad. It's the fact really that I didn't bad. finish it is mm -hmm. saying a lot. Now the actor who plays the Mummy, I'll never remember. She's her name. amazing. He's wonderful and, in everything. Yeah, 
Um, but also the uh the hair makeup on that one is great. But and again, that was Universal's attempt to start what we were calling Dark Universe over at the company. I still would love to see them attempt it. Yeah, man. Um, Jekyll and Hyde, Frankenstein. How cool would that be? Man, oh, that'd be cool. Well, getting an Avengers-style film that is the monsters. Because in the theme parks, if you're a Halloween Horror, a Halloween Horror Nights person, um, the year before COVID, so 2019, we had a Universal Monsters house, which took you through the legacy, including the bride, but you even got like Phantom of the Opera, the Invisible Man, um, Jekyll and Hyde, you got all of those aspects. Gosh, that'd be so cool. Um, and, you know, Universal, we have a huge investment in as the company. I do not speak for the company, blah, 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 give you all that. Uh, so if I say we, it's just because I worked there. Um, there's a huge investment in, we created the kind of horror genre that is known today and yeah. is, is rift with you know, hundred years ago, 1920s, 1930s, absolutely a hundred years ago. Um, and I think when you're approaching those things, you have to look at what made them work and then maybe a modern version. So I think looking at that versus this, because I have seen that I like you could not finish when you put a, a mummy, a mummy like godlike entity into a contemporary setting, it is difficult to have that as your linchpin, um, mm. combining technology and things with it. So I think it was a misstep where this one was honestly just such a love letter and it understood its references, where I think a lot of times when now that Marvel Cinematic Universe exists, that everybody wants a cinematic universe and they don't always understand what that means storytelling wise. Um, and I think, you know, I think that is where it's faltered and why this movie has worked out and kind of is still so beloved. So I have to ask you, Gabe, as we move forward, there is rumblings of another mummy film with the original cast. What would that, <laughs> <laughs> what would that mean for you to maybe see those characters? Because I, in my opinion, I think the best thing to do, especially with actors who are older now, where it's been 20 years, almost mm -hmm. 30, almost 30 years, uh, you know, 25 years since this movie came out, almost 99. Yeah, next two years will be 25 years. Um, what would it mean to have those characters? So instead of being 1922 or 23, what would it mean to have this be in the middle of World War II or just after World War II would be the next film? to kind of I, set us in that like actually move it forward 25 years so all the actors have aged you can bring the sun back do all of those things but like what would that mean to you and like what would you kind of be expecting or wanting as a fan to see in that style of film i think when you get past 30 and you start reminiscing and getting nostalgic it's you always want to see that happen like i want more firefly and i want and i wanted more star wars and I liked the, I liked the new trilogy. I I, I I think I've said that literally on this podcast. And I, I love the Mandal and I love the Mandalorian. Love the Mandalorian. Love the Mandalorian. But what you hope, especially when they, because because if they brought the original cast back, that's a nostalgia grab, right? They're doing it with Jurassic Park now too. They're bringing back Sam Neill and Commander Holdo. <laughs> Oh, uh, uh, gay icon, Laura Dern. Laura Dern, of course. I literally called her Holdo. Um, <laughs> but um, you, what, you, what you hope is that it makes you feel the way it did without making you feel old and sad. Mm -hmm. Like I want Rick O'Connell and Evie Carnahan. 
I don't want them to be old and sad. Mm-hmm. Like I like, I like real shit. Like mm-hmm. um, the one that, well, that, what comes to mind is um, Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford in the new trilogy. Mm-hmm. I, I felt that I felt different about that than a lot of people did. I know a lot of people like, I don't want to see my heroes old and sad. I, that makes me feel old and sad. But your but, heroes become <clears throat> old at some point. <laughs> your, your of course. So, so I think there's three possibilities. One is that they miss the mark and it's, and it's old and sad and it somehow tarnishes our memory of 1999 when we were 12 or 15 years old going to the theater. The other is that they, it's, they, they do it exactly right and it's a lot of fun and we all feel good. And the third is that they do what I think the new Star Wars trilogy did, which is bring them back to us in a way that is real and grounded mm-hmm. and makes sense and is not, and doesn't always make us feel nice, but, but gives a worthy and deserving end to the story. Mm-hmm. If they're just trying to like revive another cinematic universe, hey, guess what? Take my money. I'm going to go see all of yeah. them. Yeah. And I think that's the second option, right? Like if they, if it's just rousing and fun and they hand the reins off to a bunch of like a bunch of up and coming young stars, fucking Timothy Chalamet or whoever, like, great. I'm still going to go see all the movies. But if they can give me a button, if they can give me a period on the end of this sentence, mm-hmm. an exclamation point, and make me feel like, yes, my this this thing that is so important to me was well-treated, was done right by, and they finished the story for us, for us, like for the Disney millennials who are just like constantly reaching back in time and just trying to Peter Pan our way back to when we were children and like we didn't have bills to pay and shit. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's two right ways to do it, one wrong way to do it. And you just hope that it doesn't end up making you feel old and sad, right? Mm-hmm. Older is okay, but like, mm-hmm. uh, how are they going to treat my guy, Brendan? Like, right? How are they? Because like, I don't, I don't care what he looks like. Mm-mm. Like, I, we, we love him. We don't care about that. But on the big screen, in that context, how are they gonna? How are they gonna give me Rick O'Connell in a way that is faithful to? that lantern jawed, like tousled mm-hmm. hair, five o'clock shadow swashbuckler that we remember. Mm-hmm. And how are they going to do that and still treat Brendan? Well, I'm not worried about Ra- Rachel Vice. She is timeless. She is all, she's going to be great no matter what. Uh, jo- if Jonathan shows up with like, if, if he shows up bald with a, with a belly, that's fine. Right. He's, I mean, he's still thin and he got great hair. It's just, everybody's a little white, but like, wait, he I was mean, on that flick. He was on that show with Freddie Highmore, right? Yeah. Yeah. With his, with his Scottish accent. Mm-hmm. Ah, yep. he was great. Yeah. And even Oded Fair is aging beautifully. Great. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's only 50. Like, that's the thing. A lot of these actors are just like, they're just gracing into their 50s. So like, honestly, yeah, we had Harrison have... Ford deep in his 60s when we got Force Awakens. Oh, well, I mean, we're about to get an almost 70 year old Indiana Jones because they are in production right now for that movie. So like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, take my money, man. I'm going to, I mean, <laughs> I am too. But I mean, honestly, if you think about it, 25 years exactly would be 1947, which is the like, it's like just after world war ii has ended like just so it would make a ton of sense that if she's a leading academic and he is maybe he went and fought and like he's or whatnot and just the idea that like an unearthly army is rising because of all the damage that's happened to the world because of 
Well, don't you um, think also like I'm going to call the, uh, if if that's what it is and I'm going to call this shot right now, uh, Nazi remnants are trying to. Um, oh, my gosh. Indiana Jones and the. What's the first Indiana Jones movie? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Nazi remnants are trying to Raiders of the Lost Ark, a mummy army. Yep. Right. And like, I think we're I think that's probably. I think that's probably in the cards. What could be really fun is if each of the access forces have been trying to, like there is a, I don't want to say like Illuminati, but there's like the secret leaders where they're trying to each tap into something. So it's this idea that it's not just them. It's also like, oh God, there's something from here. There's something from here. There's something from here. Mm -hmm. And we got this in, uh, we we got this in first Avenger mm -hmm. and we got this in Hellboy, Mm -hmm. which is like uh, Nazi occult division mm-hmm. because like that's that's everybody's favorite like fanfic about hitler right mm-hmm. that he was secretly crazy into magic and shit yep and i think that's i think that's i think from a plot standpoint i think that's a softball mm-hmm. like gr- knock it out of the park great i like i trust good writers and good people to like to, to give me a compelling story but it's the really nuanced stuff like it's like like i talked like we talked about tomb of the dragon emperor right mm-hmm. like all the pieces were there. Why didn't it work? Well, I can give you a thousand reasons or I like, mm-hmm. or any one of those things could have been slightly tweaked and it could have just hit or just missed. Like it's such a delicate balancing act, especially in like in, in the time of Buzzfeed when mm-hmm. everybody's got to take instantly and every frame of the 30 second trailer is being picked apart. Mm-hmm. I just think the microscope is going to be so strong. Yeah. And if they're going to do it, gosh, I really hope they, really take their time and make sure i i'm, I'm fixating on brendan but like yep. he's kind of a he's kind of the avatar for the whole thing he's a linchpin yeah he's the yeah. absolute linchpin and i do i i almost rather see them not do it and kind of let him though i think it would be a fun catharsis i don't know how he would feel about it but for everyone i think it could be a nice catharsis to introduce him back to everyone as a character that he's already played again um i think like the supergirl film is going to be very telling to see him as a villain we've never seen him as a villain before he's playing firefly so i'm very interested to see that and so i think it could be very fun. But again, Rachel Weiss can do anything. She's great. She was incredible in Black Widow. She was always good. in Black Widow, kicking so much ass. In that gorgeous white costume. Like, I mean, I don't even look that good in my 30s. With her full eyebrows. Oh my God. I just, I I, I, I almost rather, rather them not, but I know that the film studios are predictable. I almost could see them waiting to see how Indiana Jones does and then deciding to do this film. Um, Because even if you moved it into the 1950s and they were in South America hunting down remnants or uh, hunting down dissenters and like trying to access like the powers, not saying the like fountain of youth because that's so easy and predictable, but like there's so much deeply hidden and secretive about South America and their Mm. religious beliefs, but mummification was huge. So doing, doing something like that and having Rachel Weiss, like have her show up in like the gorgeous fifties housewife look to then have her like put on men's clothes to go do the actual, like 
just jodhpurs and a yeah scarf. would be incredible. Yeah, be so, it'd be so Catherine Hepburn mm. that I would like older Catherine Hepburn that I would love that. But you know they'd be on a riverboat in the Amazon. Somewhere. Oh, they would have to be. Yes. Someone would someone you know the be, Nile style. <laughs> there would be a moment with piranhas. It would be awesome. The piranhas but, are the scarabs of the water. We need of this. course, of course. But you know, it's one of those things. I would almost prefer that they didn't. But if they did bring back because i also think it's the key to bring back the writing team and the the directing team and as many people as you can from that first first and second film because that first and second film was most the same team and that's why you can't bring Vaslu. you can't bring arnold Vaslu back you can't do no, it you, no you can't bring him back but i'm they talking want about like, to no well you i mean unless they unless it was literally like a flashback or something but like if that wouldn't make sense but no i meant like the crew like so yeah. if you've got your costume designers you got the because also the lighting director of this film was amazing. Their use of yeah. unnatural, well, like the sunlight and then how, how do we recreate sunlight using mirrors and things, but then how do we recreate that with like incandescent lamps and man, that the mirror, the mirror effect with the light bouncing around the room. Gosh. Oh, and, so good. and Oh, and then when we get the, the one, the big room, the treasure room with it. Mm -hmm. And it's just, there's only one effect that I hated and they only do it twice. It's the glint on the outside I of the, the treasure. <laughs> I get so it. shameless. Well, and then they do it again when- With the sound effect with Benny uh, holding well, the dish. Uh, well, and then you get the wink at the end when we realize that Benny's bag that he threw yeah. on the camel is on <laughs> O'Connell's camel. But then it's also that moment of it's like, okay, I get why it's there. But I was like, this is the only bad thing that I went, I get it. But it's so cheesy. Why? <laughs> but it also fits, right? It does like fit. it absolutely it fits, fits with the overly narrated exposition mm -hmm. and like the quips and like those like steady cam moving shots that are kind of out of vogue now. Like yeah. mm -hmm. it 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 works. It I I I look lovingly on those on those oh, moments. Yeah. I I will say this movie does like everybody's got weird trauma and phobias and things. Mine of being in a place that I have to go under like a wall or ceiling that is enclosing on me. Like I literally got so anxious, like curled up in bed watching. I was just like, and it kept happening and like the sand rushing in it's it's i between between like this and like the new hope when they're in the trash compactor i just yeah <laughs> it is such a fucking fear of mine and it just it makes the audience like i can only imagine seeing this in the theater on a giant yeah. screen because it's happening to everybody and you're just watching them like skitter under skitter under and even you're like rooting for benny to get through because i'm like oh i don't want to see him get squished <sighs> and it's just it's such a fear but so they really kind of my last thought is they do such a beautiful job of making the audience as anxious as the characters are mm -hmm. and as fearful as the actor is and that's what makes your audience uh like check in and be fully there with you the whole time it's perfectly paced it's a master class in building and releasing tension yep. building and releasing tension mm -hmm. my other one thing that i wanted to that i wanted to touch before we go the lighting of the match on the face scruff <gasps> Uh -huh. as a trope has that ever worked throughout history i don't care i don't <laughs> I know but it's it. kind of hot <laughs> when he lights it on odette bear's jaw and lights the dynamite time to close the door oh my god it's the quips like mm -hmm. the quips never stop and they never feel like too much it's like how did they do this that's what i was watching this movie like how did they hit every note perfectly and make almost zero mistakes well i think they understood that thing where as humans when we get so uncomfortable and upset 
we giggle or we laugh. It's a lot of people's defense mechanism. Your body naturally will do it. So if they're giving you permission to be terrified and then laugh and then be terrified and laugh, it's cathartic in a way, but you're also going to be comforted and comfortable with mm. that situation. And so I think that was a psychological, I, again, putting words in their heads, but I think it was a psychological opportunity where it worked. And I think it works so beautifully. I'm going to watch it again this week. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, because I, I don't have, I'm in a hotel and I don't have whatever it's on. I don't have HBO Max on this TV. I'm going to watch it on my phone in the gym again. I love that. I mean, also it means you'll want to stay longer at the gym. So it totally works. There you go. Well, Gabe, thank you for coming on the show right now. Where can people find you on the internet if you want them to find you? Oh my gosh. I do almost, I do almost everything on Insta nowadays. Please just find me at, at Gabe Martinez official. Uh, it's all Moulin Rouge stuff. Now that's going to be the next year of my life. I don't have anything else going on, but there's going to be all types of Moulin Rouge content. Uh, I'm going to try and up my social media game this year, but more, more to the point, please check out uh, MoulinRougeBroadway.com and see when the tour, when the first national North American tour is coming to a city near you. It's the most fun. It's my most favorite show. It's, it's sexy. It's funny. It's tragic. It's just a great night out at the theater. Come out and see it. If you like beautiful people in tight clothing and men in corsets, you have to see Moulin Rouge. <laughs> in almost no clothing. <laughs> in almost no clothing. Oh yeah, the the when I saw the Broadway run and it's those boys at the pre-show in the corsets that make uncomfortably long eye contact with you. Yeah. They're known <sighs> as the twins if you need another reason to be com- uncomfortable about that. I, ooh, I'm, I'm fine with that. It's whatever. It's fine. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, they are stunningly beautiful boys and everyone in the show is just gorgeous and i'm sure the tour cast sings the shit out of that score it's so much fun so see it in a city near you and gabe thank you for being on the show so i have a question have you ever wanted to get into comics but you just didn't know where to start well welcome to comics quest I'm J.D. Martin, and every week I sit down with a guest to talk a comic that I think anybody can pick up and start their comics reading journey. We take a look at psychedelic sci-fi, fantastical action, heart-wrenching love stories, and of course, superheroes. So check us out at CertainPOV.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Saturday Morning Confidential is brought to you by Dreamer Productions and is a proud member of the Certain POV Podcast Network. You can find us on Facebook at Saturday Morning Confidential, on Instagram at SMC Pod, and on Twitter at The SMC Podcast. You can find all the shows that Certain POV has to offer at CertainPOV.com or also on Patreon at Dreamer Productions, where your donation of only $2 a month keeps constant programming coming in and supporting our new shows as we go throughout 2022. Now join us again next time for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. CPOV CertainPOV.com